So, hey, everybody. Um, happy New Year. This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. I spent the holidays doing, of course, a lot of thinking and working on my book for the, this will be the sixth year, but this is the year, I promise. Uh, it's called In Search of the Revolution, The Journey of a Movement Organizer. And my book opens up, I saw a revolution with my own eyes and I helped to make it. I saw a counter-revolution with my own eyes and I've been fighting it ever since. We have to build a movement, if not a revolution, against the counter-revolution because the future of the people and the planet is at stake. Now, the thing about saying I saw a revolution with my own eyes is scary to me because almost nobody today sees it, certainly not the way I saw it. And if you've ever seen those movies where you know that the protagonist is right, but everybody else says he's crazy or she's crazy that didn't happen, I think if you listen to our conversation with both the late Julian Bond and Mumia Abu Jamal and myself, you'll understand that we are desperately trying to reconstruct a revolutionary consciousness in the age of counter-revolution. And in my opinion, not doing a very good job or we're doing a good job, but I can't say it's being very successful. So I just saw over the weekend, I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, Summer of Soul. Oh, and the revolution cannot be televised. A documentary film directed by Amir Questlove Thompson about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. But what struck me about the film is to see 50,000 black faces in 1969, to see Mavis Staples and Stevie Wonder and Ray Barreto, and I can go on and on and on. I was there. I wasn't at that particular one. I think I was in prison at the time. But I was at hundreds of meetings of black people if not thousands. I was there during the Newark Rebellion. I was there at Malcolm X's funeral. I was there when we occupied the Pentagon. But who gives a damn right now? I don't want to be some older guy telling war stories and people go, oh, thank you for the service to the country or something. I mean, where the hell's the revolution today? It's very, very hard to find. So, Today, we have two amazing segments, two amazing conversations. And I'm working with Ernesto Arce, who's our producer, because I want to go back and do a lot of shows this year that will be retrospective shows, because we have done, over the last 15 years, some of the greatest shows that you'll ever hear. And some of you were lucky enough to hear them. But as Julian Bond will say, it's not nostalgia. It's a history that you need to know. So we'll start with my conversation with Mumia Abu-Jamal, which was about four years ago. This was the second of two conversations, and we'll play the first one soon. Interestingly, because I went back, of course, and listened to it, it's a long conversation about books and films. It starts with my critique of Steven Spielberg's horrible film, Lincoln. And Mamiya and I are having a long talk 
about the role of Hollywood's misrepresentation of history. We both decide that W.E.B. Du Bois is the greatest author each of us has ever read. So I'm talking to Mumia Bujmal about Black Reconstruction America. And he's saying, no, my favorite is Dark Water. And we're both laughing because we're sort of arguing within the frame of both adoring W.E.B. Du Bois. And for most of you who are listening on now, do you even know who he was? Have you read Black Reconstruction America or The Souls of Black Folks or Dark Water or anything? Do you even know who really Mumia is? And are you following it? And are you trying to get him out of prison? In the conversation with Mumia, there's a real lament of, yes, a new generation of zombies on headphones, zombies on cell phones. We're not trying to inspire. We're trying to agitate and we're trying to upset people about the failure of people's life choices right now and the need, the requirement to make tougher choices. So that's the thing with Mumia. A lot of discussion about the Hollywood dream machine, about self-enslavement, about the need to read and the need to make our own films. In the second conversation with the amazing Julian Bond, in this conversation, it's very painful because I talked to Julian Bond in June of 2014 on the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer, which was the summer of 1964. He was already a hero in the summer of 1964, and I was just getting involved in the movement with the Congress of Racial Equality. But we were both of a very similar age. So many of us at 19, 20, 21, and 22 were the mature leaders of a revolutionary movement. In my case, I was a Jewish kid who luckily was working with black leaders of a revolutionary movement who were generous enough to include me in it. The conversation with Julian Bond is, is, again, painful to me because I ask him all these great people, Fannie Lou Hamer, James Foreman, Malcolm X, Eva Baker, and he has these amazing short descriptions of each of them. And again, we go back to who knows James Farmer and who knows Eva Baker besides the caricature that she didn't believe in leadership, which is absolutely not true. Or even that she didn't believe in hierarchy, which is absolutely not true. She just believed in extreme democracy. But the point is, did you know that Ellen Baker drank bourbon? And did you know that Julian went to her apartment and always called her Ms. Baker? When you listen to Julian Bond, I'm happy about the conversation because I'm quieter than normal. I'm asking questions shorter, which is good. You have to remember the two of us are in Jackson, Mississippi, sitting at the president of Tougaloo College's office, who was generous enough to give us her office for all these conversations. So Mumia Abu-Jamal is making history. And Julian Bond made history for over 50 years. And I continue to make history today, along with the labor 
Community Strategy Center. And we need you as listeners to voices to help us in this historical memory project, which I just gave it a name because that's what I want to do this year. Is of course, we'll continue to have people on voices who are making history today. But what's the sense of making history today if you don't relate to the thousands of years of history against oppression that we're supposed to be a part of and that I am a part of? If you're interested in helping build the Strategy and Soul bookstore, the Strategy and Soul film theater, and yes, building up voices from the front lines, send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and say, I want to help you in the historical memory project. With this, what a gift to give you the conversation with Mamiya Abu-Jamal, followed by Ernesto Arce's South Central Third World News, followed by an amazing conversation with Julian Bond, one of the great civil rights leaders from SNCC all the way through the NAACP. Take good care of yourselves and let's have a very revolutionary 2022. Hi, this is Eric Mann. Is this Mumia? It is indeed. Hey, brother. I'm very excited to be talking to Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, I was profoundly impacted by our last conversation, and um, I've sort of been on a whirlwind of thinking and reading and writing, and I'm going to, if it's okay, do a couple minutes of reflections on our last conversation. Damon Azali Rojas and others have suggested that we consider our conversation sort of as an infinite series on <laughs> black revolutionary thought and where do we go from here. Are you up for me opening, and then you'll you'll I'm hit me down for that? <laughs> yeah, that's better than up. So yeah, uh, it's wonderful to be talking to you. So let, let me start. Lincoln is a film that should be resubmitted for a new category that Hollywood perfects, but not does not yet publicly recognize. Well-meaning pictures that do more harm than good. Lincoln is a film about white people debating, maneuvering, and fighting over whether or not to pass the 13th Amendment. But where were the black historical dramatic actors who were the real leads of the story, the 400,000 runaway slaves who forced the Union armies to accept them and who put the heat on Lincoln to support their emancipation or lose the war? They were whited out of the film. Lincoln is not just historically inaccurate, but tragically so doing its greatest disservice to a new generation of black youth whose people's remarkable history in fighting slavery, leading the Reconstruction, fighting Jim Crow, leading the anti-Vietnam War movement, and creating the conditions for the election of the first black president in the history of the United States has been stolen from them in a wave of mass imprisonment and aggressive revisionist history. And I say, when I first saw the film, I suspended disbelief and I enjoyed it a lot. But a few minutes after leaving the theater, I realized that once again Hollywood had deceived me, and the person I was most angry at was myself. Because you enjoyed it. Right? Yeah, I was angry at myself that I enjoyed it, and I just sort of suspended disbelief and stuff that I should have known. Absolutely. And these people are good at it. Well, they're experts at it. You know, Malcolm said used to say that, uh, speaking of white supremacy, 
you know, they've been doing it for almost 500 years. They're experts at it. <laughs> right. You know? And the truth can be, I mean, the same, actually, can be said about Hollywood. Because, you know, Hollywood is the major fabricator of dreams, not just for the United States, for, for the whole world. And in the context in which you critique Lincoln, a film I have not seen, I must admit, uh, I actually was thinking about, believe it or not, the millions of white kids who were also betrayed because uh, they're able to now uh, continue their dream by something manufactured by Dreamland of a kind of uh, liberal and soft white supremacy. This uh, call is from the State Correctional Institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. Those of us who study history know that, you know, to quote uh, Lerone Bennett, he was forced into glory. That's the title of Lerone Bennett's book about Lincoln, how, you know, in his private time, I doubt the movie shows this, but in his private time, among his cabinet and other uh, pale friends, uh, he made nigger jokes. I mean, he was famous in that circle of people who knew him for his nigger jokes. Uh, he loved uh, minstrels. And we don't see that Frederick Douglass, among others, but primarily Frederick Douglass, uh, gave him hell, uh, critiqued him mercilessly in his newspaper and in speeches uh, and in letters. He was a public thorn in the ass of Abraham Lincoln. Well, let me uh, respond to that for a minute, because sure. in, in that the two of us are seem to be on the same acid trip or something. Uh, I talk about, uh, in, back into the review, uh, the movie did not explain this critical role that Frederick Douglass and the runaway slaves played in this story, none of right. which was reflected on Lincoln. Douglass, as Doris Kearns Goodman explains, recruited black soldiers, including two of his sons, for the Union Army, and had a contentious, complex, and influential relationship with Lincoln. Imagine a scene in which a towering Douglass demands of a vacillating Lincoln that unless he retaliates against the Confederacy ideologically and militarily for their murdering of captured black Union soldiers, Douglas would stop or recruiting and distance himself from the Union cause. Douglas thunders in terms few would have dared. What is Mr. Lincoln to say about this slavery and murder? What has he said? Not at one word. Until he shall interpose his power to prevent these atrocious assassinations of Negro soldiers, the civilized world will hold them equally with Jefferson Davis responsible for them. There you go. Right. That's, I mean, think of that powerful oratory uh, that could have uh, given a real historical temperature to the film instead of this, you know, uh, Spielbergian uh, illusion, you know, uh, sweetened, enlightened, whitened, we should say, that history did never truly see. Um, Douglas gave him hell. And think about the present, because history informs our present. Who was a major critique of the Obama administration? Uh, the black freedom movement has been virtually uh, silenced because he's a black man and you don't want to hurt a brother. And, you know, the conditions of black America today are more hellish than they were before his election. Um, so, 
you know, it's not like we're just talking about Lincoln. We're talking about today's news, today's reality. And uh, once again, you know, Hollywood has sold us all a dream. And it can be a beautiful dream, but it is just a dream. It is not, uh, you know, even a fair historical portrayal of what happened. Uh, I mean, there are a hundred black actors who could have played Frederick Douglass. I saw the young man who played him on the PBS special, The Abolitionists. And he, I actually saw something, you know, I read a lot of history, but I saw an, an entry that I had never seen before. It showed Douglas uh, telling his daughter, we have to leave this country, you know. Uh, he was so disappointed in Lincoln. He uh, prepared his passport and got his papers together, him and his daughter, to leave this country. He did not want to live in the United States anymore. Um so, I mean, obviously we don't see anything like that. And, and we need to dare to tell children how America came to be, you know, warts and all. Because that's the only way they can stop dreaming this kind of Santa Claus fantasy about freedom and justice for all. It was the exact reverse of that. Well, let me ask you this, Momia, in the, in the present context, you have, uh, um, Michelle Obama on giving out the o Academy Awards, you have, uh, how does one develop a critique now of a black president? How, obviously you're doing a lot of thinking about this, and if you're speaking to a, as you said, not just a new generation of black revolutionaries, but of w white anti-racist kids who need more leadership, what are some of the things you want to tell them? I think that the key to really kind of waking up young kids who are part of the revolutionary and radical movements, and uh, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, is to really talk about empire. Because I think when we talk about empire, um, we pierce a lot of veils. We pull down a lot of curtains. Uh, I think I told you uh, that before uh, the president was elected, I was speaking with some British comrades who were socialists, and, you know, deeply involved in the movement, and they were like all a thrill about the election. They were like, well, this is like what the black movement wanted, right? And I said, well, what it means to me is the pretty brown face of empire, that the empire will not change, but the mask behind which the empire thrives and does its global terrorism, that will change. And they looked at me as if I had sprouted horns and I was speaking in Martian. They could not get it. Their, their, their mouths dropped. But time has told the truth of that tale. And, uh, I mean, imagine George Bush, let's say he had a third term, or even in his second term, bombing several African countries. What would the reaction be in black America? You know, what That's would right. the reaction be? People would be over the moon in anger and outrage. Instead, there's a deadly silence, you know, with some exceptions, to be sure. But for the most part, there isn't even criticism. And, uh, you know, right-wing conservatives can, you know, claim that Obama's a socialist and he was born in Kenya and, uh, you know, all that nonsense, and where's his birth certificate? But in truth, if you talk to military people or people from the uh, national security state and the so-called quote-unquote intelligence agencies, they'll tell you, quite frankly, that uh, Obama is far more martial 
I mean, he's using smart bombs and drones and other techniques. But think of the number of countries that have been attacked. It's really quite stunning. In, in terms of the development of your own consciousness, yes. could you ever imagine the concept of drones? And, and what are you thinking about that? Because I totally agree, but this seems to be... ...correctional institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. You know, Eric, it's almost like um, a sci-fi movie come to life. I could not have imagined it, you know, uh, in 50 years. I mean, it just... You know, we live in a technological... Think about this. You know, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi nerd, so I've probably <laughs> seen every major movie and some minor ones. If you look at all those movies, none of them saw the power of the Internet or the computer. None of them predicted that, even though they did a pretty good job of predicting what the future would look like. Right. None of them saw this complete saturation of society. My wife tells me that our grandchildren, when they go to school, have cell phones and... You can, like, do anything with it. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine that. It's a whole new world that a lot of us never saw. And, of course, the computers, uh, what are the soldiers doing who are operating the games? Uh, uh, well, war games. They're really playing a computer game. You know. Well, you know, it's... The movie it's war games? Yes. Well, yeah. you know, we have about three minutes. One of the things I want to you, you comment on is sort of the national security state... You know, we've reached the point where do you know that your kids' cell phones have a GPS in them and that the system is tracking every single person who has a cell phone? GPS total. Yeah. It's, it's, it, too, is mind-boggling because people now buy the tracking services so people can track you literally walking down the street. And they can monitor your communications. There are cases here in Pennsylvania where let us say, alleged uh, mafia men had conversations with their pals. And they might have turned off their phones. And the government remotely turned it back on and listened to the <laughs> word. And then, wow. you know, busted them and said, do you want the transcript or do you want the tape? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and and they, it's real. It's happening right now. In your last two minutes, any films, any books, your last thoughts that, that, that's right at the front of your mind? Well, I'm reading uh, right you before this. Seconds remaining. I was reading the collected writings of W.B. Du Bois. I mean, you can't go wrong reading Du Bois. He was the greatest of us. When you read him, you see the America that was hidden from you and me. And uh, he's well worth reading and rereading and learning from, brother. Let me give you my last, since the two of us must have some brain connection. I think Black Reconstruction America is the most important book written in U.S. history. It provides the most historical analysis of the formation of the black nation and black That's liberation. I would uh, dissent from that view because my favorite of Du Bois is something, a little-known book called Darkwater. Stunning piece. It's an angry Du Bois that you don't see in his earlier works. It is, but we'll both agree on Du Bois. But listen, this is great because you got the last word, so we have to have the debate next week. Let us do it. Okay, my brother. Pleasure. It's a pleasure for me, too, and I'll be in touch with you very soon. Okay, Eric. Take good care, Mumia. With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with voices from the front lines and news from South Central to the Global South. Community groups are calling for the criminal prosecution of an LAPD officer who shot and killed a 14-year-old innocent bystander right before the holidays. 
Officer William Jones fired at a suspect, but also shot Valentina Orellana Peralta, who was with her mother in a dressing room when she was struck by the police bullet that passed through a wall on the second floor of a Burlington store in North Hollywood. Cliff Smith, with community control over the police, says it's another needless loss of innocent life. This 14-year-old child who should be with her family today enjoying their holiday. And we demand justice. And the justice we demand is that the district attorney file criminal charges against Officer Jones to hold him accountable for Valentina's death. California and LAPD policy require body-worn camera footage to be released within 45 days of the incident, but LAPD Chief Michael Moore made it public within days. Hey, she's bleeding! She's bleeding! In the next several months, the LAPD will continue to investigate and analyze this incident. On the Monday following the incident, the department released a professionally edited 35-minute documentary-style video. It shows a violent and erratic suspect attacking customers with a bike lock, raising his bicycle above his head, swinging wildly and even removing his pants at one point. 911 calls seem to back up the LAPD's narrative that the scene was turning into a threat for innocent holiday shoppers and workers. But the reckless manner in which Officer Jones decides to shoot lethal rounds is troubling. Also worth noting is how quickly the entire presentation was put together, including 911 tape, numerous store surveillance camera video, body cam footage from several officers, along with department commentary. Many family members of those killed in LAPD shootings over the last couple of years have also called for the immediate release of body cam footage, but didn't receive it. Ultimately, local groups say it's yet another police killing of an innocent person as a result of poor policy that encourages shoot first, protect police lives at all cost. The world welcomes the year 2022 with more than 1 million cases of COVID-19 per day and more limits to indoor public gatherings due to the Omicron variant. Amid canceled holidays, curfews, and other pandemic restrictions, the world saw the Omicron variant cause an unprecedented surge in infections despite vaccines. In the last seven days alone, an average of 1.1 million infections were detected daily, 46% more than the previous week. The U.S. recorded its highest daily infection rate since the beginning of the pandemic, and experts say the sharp increase in cases of the variant is unprecedented and unlike anything seen before. While vaccines offer hope, the Omicron variant has raised the infection to record levels, something that could cause the collapse of the healthcare system in the most affected countries. As usual, countries of the global south from Africa, Asia, and Latin America continue to struggle to vaccinate their populations, which stems mostly from economic issues and lack of educational campaigns. In Latin America, 35-year-old former student president leader Gabriel Boric became president-elect of Chile, becoming the youngest in the nation's history, winning a closely contested election. Boric led a political coalition that includes the Communist Party, symbolic because it was a political formation persecuted and practically annihilated during the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, who ruled for nearly two decades. I know that in the coming years, Chile's future is at stake, so I guarantee you that I'll be a president that looks after democracy and not risk it, that takes care of what he says, that always looks for unity, that will attend to people's needs every day, that firmly stands up against the privilege of the few, and work every day for the Chilean families to have a good quality of life. 
Boric has promised to bury Pinochet's bitter legacy and neoliberal economics once and for all. The heads of state from Russia, China, U.S., U.K., and France issued a joint statement this week noting that nuclear weapons, for as long as they continue to exist, should serve only for defensive purposes, deter aggression, and prevent war. The five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council called on the prevention of nuclear war and its consequences, as well as to avoid arms races, saying nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. U.S. media outlet The Hill published an editorial calling it a solid statement while adding that none have backed it up with action. The Hill argued that President Joe Biden should be the first to make a pledge never to use nuclear weapons. It says that a U.S. pledge would challenge all nuclear weapon states to make similar pledges. Currently, North Korea is the only nuclear-equipped state to have an official no-first-strike policy. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio. Well, hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. We're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Every single conversation I've had has changed my views of things, have influenced me in the present. There's very little nostalgia here. There are people who are continuing to do work, continuing to think, and trying to talk about, obviously, a pivotal experience for an entire generation. But most of the people here on the 50th anniversary are on the 50th anniversary of their organizing. So in that context, we're really happy to have Julian Bond with us, who's been a very important figure in the civil rights, black liberation, progressive movement. He was obviously one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which we'll talk about. He was elected to the Georgia State Legislature and denied admission, and that became a very important co-celebra. And you might not think that people of those politics would run for office. And then he's moved through many, many different incarnations, and I believe you were chairman of the board of the NACP. And on the... 50th anniversary of SNCC, I think you gave a really terrific oh, thank you. speech. Thank you. Worked hard on that. It was a very thoughtful effort at the struggle of black people and where are they now. So in that context, Julian Bond, really nice to be with you. Well, good to be here. Thank you for this. What was the pivotal moment in your life when you went from believing in things to thinking you had a real obligation to act? Well, it must have been in 1960 when a student approached me in a cafe in Atlanta and held up a newspaper to me and said, have you seen this? I thought he was talking about, do you read the paper? But he was talking about an article about the Greensboro sit-in and prompted me to join him in repeating that here in Atlanta. And that's that's when I took my first big step. So that was quick. Yeah. You saw a picture and you organized a sit-in. Right, exactly. How were you treated? Pretty well. Atlanta was a relatively moderate place in race relations. If you got outside the city, you're in real trouble, but on the, within the city limits, it was okay. So the police acted as you want policemen to, nothing really harmful, but it was a good introduction to activism for me. Now, I make a distinction between activism and organizing, because to me, activism is an act of participation. Organization becomes a long-term commitment and actually building an institution. When did you think you made the transition from seeing yourself as an activist to someone who wanted to build an institution like SNCC. Shortly after the incident I just told you about, and it's interesting because I got involved in the sit-in demonstrations believing 
that would be a relatively short-lived act process. Right, right. But I joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, believing that would be relatively short-lived, but longer than the sit-ins. Right. And didn't think it would last forever for the rest of my life, and of course it didn't. Uh, but thought that would be a little longer lasting. Then I joined the NAACP, which was already ancient at that time, and is over 109 years old now. Uh, so that was a, another example of longevity with an organization. And uh, I'm not really associated with any organization right now, but still I'm doing many of the things I was doing in those other organizations. Well, let's go back to relationships with some pivotal fi figures, okay? Ella Baker. Ella Baker, I was thinking about her today. We saw a picture of her after the screen when we were talking about those who passed away. Ella Baker lived in an apartment building in Atlanta called the Walla Haji. It was named after the people who built it, whose names were Wallace and Hodges, hence Walla Haji. And she had a very small apartment there. And I remember visiting her in her apartment and her taking out a, I think, a quart of uh, bourbon which is welcome to me at the time. I was drinking bourbon at the time. Uh, and she was just a remarkable person. And peculiarly, or maybe not peculiarly, I could never call her Ella. Many of the women who worked for SNCC called her Ella, but I called her Miss Baker. She was always Miss Baker to me, and she always will be Miss Baker to me. And she was such an expert at saying to you, not do this, but have you thought of doing that? And there's a great difference between these two things. And she was just a master at it. Well, even though it's an archetypical story, it is very important that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came together as just a coordinating committee at first. Mm -hmm. of that There were a lot of sit-ins, right. and wouldn't it be good if we sort of all got together and had a mutual strategy, right? Because she understood, Ella Baker understood, that we might not have the experience, might not have the thought to do this in an organized way. Or we might have, but if we didn't, wouldn't it be better if we develop it one, develop ourselves, and can't you develop it yourselves? She never said do this or do that. She always said, don't you think you might do this? And the story is that she encouraged Dr. King to not make this an adjunct of SCLC. Right. And the students, she also encouraged the young people not to not to become an adjunct of SCLC or the NAACP right. or Core. the Quality or any of these organizations. Why don't you make one of your own? And we made one of our own. Amazing contribution to history, right? Yeah. Um, James Foreman. I can't remember when I met Foreman for the very first time, but I met him when he was fresh from Monroe, North Carolina, where he'd been to talk to Robert Williams, the NAACP president, who yeah. returned Klan fire with black fire. Um, and he was fresh from that and came to Atlanta to meet people in this new phenomenon called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And very quickly we understood that in part because of his age, he was older than we were, and part because of his wisdom, that he'd make a great director of this organization and we prevailed on him to take it and bam there he was he came out of the service yes he came out of the service and i think his service period was an example of building for him learning new things for him in ways we did not have almost none of us had been in the service and almost none of us went in the service i never did but uh, i thought he, this was some training for him that he had that advanced him above the level where we were. I've read some old documents. He did a lot of writing about the theory of organizations and how could SNCC function and gave a lot of attention to the actual building of an yeah. organization. Um, Malcolm X. I have never met Malcolm X for longer than a period of, hello, how are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, so I can't say I knew him in any real sense of the word. 
but I was around him on a couple of occasions and had saw him operate and watched him operate and grew to understand that here's a man who had a, a real idea of, of how to go about things, how to plan, how to, how to go from here to there in a way that I think young, younger people didn't quite know. Uh, so he was just such a remarkable man. It was a thrill to be around him. And one of the great things I remember about him is it, him saying to a crowd, not to me, but to a crowd, he said, man, those people in the Southern Movement made me look funny. He said, they're really onto something. So, you know, you appreciate that kind of uh, pat on the back. Like another one we got from <laughs> President Kennedy. You get this on the White House t tapes. He's talking to his advisors during the Birmingham campaign, complaining about something that happened in, in Birmingham the night before. And he says, those snake people are sons of bitches. I love that. That's right. That's one of the best compliments. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. I, again, I, I did know Ms. Hamer more than I knew Malcolm X. She was just such a pleasant person, such an outgoing person, who didn't have much formal education, but was so outreaching, the sort of person you felt you could be with, you could be close to, you could learn from her, you could be a part of her. She was just remarkable in that way. She was open to you. And that was her genius, I think. And then another one of her geniuses was laying out very pithy formulations that you would remember and act on. Yes, indeed. You know, like she came to the Newark Community Union Project and we had a second floor office and she walked in and she said, if I come back next year and you don't have a storefront, you'll never see me again. <laughs> and we got a storefront. I mean, she yeah. said, well, how are you expecting people to climb stairs? And we hadn't thought of it, you know. Yeah. She wasn't the only person. Then she came in and gave a three-hour presentation about her negotiations with Walter Ruther, mm -hmm. Bayard Rustin, even King, mm -hmm. Humphrey. And, of course, the line was, they literally, Bayard Rustin pointed to Humphrey and said, Miss Hamer, if you take the compromise, Hubert Humphrey could be vice president of the United States. And she said, with all due respect, I didn't come off all the way from Mississippi to make you vice president of the United States. I thought you wanted to be vice president of the United States to seat the people from Mississippi. Yeah. And then she turned to us and said, there's two lessons here. One, compromise is not a bad word. But one party wins the compromise and one party loses. And if they offered us a winning compromise, I would have taken it. Number two, never sign on to anything that you cannot take to your base in good conscience yeah. because you are representing people. And if you come back and say, I didn't get it, they don't mind. But if you said, I gave it away, you'll be in big, big trouble. Exactly so. And that's what I teach. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's totally changed my understanding of organizing. And I've been in situations, in negotiations, where I realized, no, we're going to bring it back to the group. And if the group doesn't want it, we're not going to do it. Yeah. Did you play an active role in the MFTP? No, not really because of James Foreman. This is a funny story. We had, uh, I don't know if the order was this hurt, but Snick took a trip to Africa, mm. and I went. And uh, the trip to Guinea. And some people, John Lewis and Don Harris, went further than right. other African states. But I was with the group that only went to Guinea and then went to Paris and then came back to the States. That was, I think, just before the convention in Atlantic City. And so Foreman told me I couldn't go because I had gone to Africa. And a little while later, I realized that he went to Africa. <laughs> so why couldn't I go too? No, that sounds like James Foreman too. Let's talk about your uh, candidacy for the 
legislature of Georgia. I think one of the things that's fascinating about that is people didn't understand that we had a pretty multifaceted understanding of what we were doing. We were not just protesters. We had a strategy. And obviously they were seen as an opportunity to get you elected. I think most of our listeners and viewers don't even know this story. So how did this happen? This came about because a federal court had reapportioned the Georgia legislature. Georgia had a most malapportioned legislature of all the states in the United States. And it meant that rural areas had enormous power. Urban areas where the population was had relatively little power. And so a court order reapportioned the legislature. And I found myself living in the middle of one of these new districts of equal size with other districts. And it meant that black people would be elected to the House of Representatives in Georgia for the first time since Reconstruction, as long ago as that. So I ran for one of these districts, and I won. A friend of mine, uh, Ben Brown, who sadly has died, uh, ran in the adjacent district. Uh, We were very close, and he won his, and I won mine. And we were all set to take our seats. Uh, We knew that we would meet hostility by white legislators who didn't want black people in the legislature. We didn't expect any trouble about this, just some reaction. But then, just before we were to take our seats, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee issued an anti-war statement, which if I told you about it today, you'd say, oh, people say that all the time now. But then it sounded radical and extreme, and it caused a great deal of hoorah in the general population, and the legislators were just outraged that we would dare to have opinions about foreign policies, and the opinions would be contrary to theirs. So as the date for my uh, taking my seat arrived, the opposition began to bubble and rise up. And when the day for me to take my seat came, legislators-to-be decided to put me out of the legislature. They declared my seat vacant and called for a new election. And I ran for in that election, and I won that election, and they called me out of the legislature again. I ran again for a third time, and in the interim, I filed a lawsuit, uh, and it was heard by a three-judge federal court, and the two judges appointed by President Kennedy voted against me, and the judge appointed by President Nixon voted for me. Wow. Because this was just at the time when the Republican Party was in the middle of some transition, and the Democratic Party was in the middle of some transition, too. At any rate, I appealed the decision to the Supreme Court, and I had never been to the Supreme Court, so I went up to hear my case being argued, and I found myself sitting in the front row of the spectator seats next to uh, Victor Rabinowitz, who was my lawyer. Oh, really? His law partner was Leonard Boudin. Oh. He was arguing the case for me. And so I'm sitting next to Victor Rabinowitz and listening to the Attorney General of Georgia argue that they had a right to throw me out, that I had said things that were contrary to, to American public opinion and therefore ought to be thrown out of the legislature. And something remarkable happened. I'd never been to the Supreme Court before, and I didn't understand that the justices would interfere right. with lawyers. And Justice Byron White, uh, who was well known as Wizard White because he was the only Supreme Court justice who played for the NFL. That's right. And he, he said to the Attorney General, to his argument, he says, is that all you have? He said, that's all you have? You come all this way and that's all you have? <laughs> so I hunched uh, Victor Rabinowitz. I said, we're winning now, aren't we? He said, yes, you are. And we won nine to nothing. Nine to nothing. Well, it's very important to know that that's a beautiful story, and it's also important that Victor Rabinowitz is a story unto himself. Yes, Leonard Boudin, you had gold. You had two of the greatest civil rights lawyers, yeah. most brilliant. So when you're just you know, dropping the name... ACLU wouldn't support me, wouldn't defend me because I had them. <laughs> you know, this well, would be the people 
control, helping my civil liberties. But I didn't apparently didn't have the civil liberties to choose a lawyer of my own choosing. Or lawyers that were closer to the Communist Party. Yes, right. Bill Kunstler and Arthur Conoy, the same, were the two greatest lawyers I knew at the yeah. time. But you were very fortunate to have Victor Rubinowitz and Leonard Boudin, who were only two of the truly greatest civil rights lawyers in the United States at the time. Oh, yeah, they were just fabulous. I couldn't have chosen anybody as good as they were. And I want to go back a step about what, when you ran in the district, because you won three times, you know, as they always say, let's keep running the election until we get it right, you know, yeah. <laughs> right? So what did you talk to the people about in this predominantly black district? Well, first I laid out a platform, and then I went around to them asking them how they liked my platform and what I could change in my platform, do better, do worse, right. or whatever. Right. And I can't remember it all, it's been so long ago. But one thing was to increase the minimum wage in Georgia to, I think, a dollar fifty, which is nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Um, but anyway, it was a fairly well thought out and vetted campaign platform, vetted with my constituents. I asked them, what they well, what do you think about this? Is this okay? Is this a good idea? Right. Do you like that? Or so on. And they were just astounded because they had never had somebody ask them these questions before. They had never elected a legislator from this district. It never happened before. A district this small. And whomever they had had before in the larger district that preceded my district, they never had anybody ask them what they wanted. So I think it was an innovation for them as it was for me. So that's what I, that's the way I campaigned. Well, at the time, we were very moved by the concept of participatory democracy, mm -hmm. right? And I was organizing in Newark and, and SNCC. I think we had a vision of a revolutionary democracy yeah. in which the actual people at the grassroots would be asked for once. And, I, and then the question was, could the people, after they're asked, get enough power to win? So I want to jump in a funny way after the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party because I'm very interested in this period of all the choices that people made after the MSDP. Uh, obviously, Stokely moved to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and, which I thought was pretty exciting to, which people don't know, to build an actual base on the grounds. But over a year, there were John Hewlett. Other people moved in more quote, revolutionary directions. Other people moved in more nationalist directions. Other people moved to reform the Democratic Party and say, no, it's not automatically the end of this conversation. First, what of those paths, what were you thinking at the time? And it helped me, since I think you and I are always trying to keep everybody in one, why can't we all get along, Paul? Yeah. is me. Like, yeah. I understand this difference, yeah. and, but is this really what we're going to break up over? So where were you, and then what were your efforts to try to build a broader civil rights black movement at the time. I didn't try to build the Democratic Party in a different direction. I wish now I had. I'd done something to create a political party of some kind with some relevance to what people really needed and what they wanted, but I didn't do that. I ran every two years as a Democrat. I won elections, one after the other, for 20 years. Uh, worked in the House, got elected to the State House, got elected to the State Senate. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, and I didn't, I'm sorry to say, do as much as I could have done or should have done in Georgia itself. Instead, I traveled all over the country. I got invitations to speak here and there and someplace else. After the Chicago Political Democratic Party convention, I began to be inundated with invitations to go here and there and talk about things. And I generally talked about the war, had an anti-war attitude and, and argued against the war, and talked about 
race relations and, and what the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee could do and what my listeners could do, what people could do themselves in their own neighborhoods, their own community. So that's why I spent almost the next, say, 20-odd years is doing that. Well, one of the things that I think, again, in terms of, I mean, both I live this history, but then I just study history every day, every yeah. day, including, of course, way, way back history. But I don't think people, again, understand the significance of a civil rights movement that took a, such a militant stand against the war. Yeah, no. And that from when SNCC came out with Hell No, We Won't Go, mm. that had such a profound influence. I think that was the first time I consciously became anti-war. Then there was the SDS march on Washington in April of 65. There was Muhammad Ali's amazing campaign. There was King's campaign. But every one of those was met with such repression from mm. King People don't realize that Ali was sentenced to five years in prison for draft evasion. So let's talk about that, the explosive intersection of the war and the civil rights, and those who are telling us, no, no, those are two separate issues. You know, it's interesting that today I met a man who had put on the first moratorium, and that meant something special to me because I met my wife-to-be at the first moratorium. So, and this guy who put on the first and second moratoriums told me an interesting history of the time between the first and the second. Between the first, the idea of the moratorium was simply to say there are many, many Americans that were against the war and they wanted it stopped. And they'd be welcoming if this were happening. This is Nixon who was president of the United States. From the first moratorium to the second moratorium, the repression just grew and grew and grew. Agnew was unleashed and began to attack the student protesters and so on in a vituperative way, the way he'd not done so before. And I didn't realize this. This guy's telling me this. Uh, and something else happened that showed the repression echoing up and uh, just showed what the war machine would do, the horrors it would do. So I had not understood this history before. It was just interesting to have him tell it to me. Uh, made me understand what was happening around me in a way I had not before. Well, in bearing the cross, by David Garrett is just the whole section of what happened after the Vincent Harding, Martin Luther King speech at the Riverside. Right. It was, I believe, 1967. The extent of the attacks on King after he took the war position. A dramatic loss of money, dramatic loss of influence, and he was shocked. Yeah. But he sort of knew it was coming. So I just want to say that I don't think a lot of white people understand that so much of the anti-war movement was black. Yeah. And so much of the anti-war energy came out of what was perceived as the civil rights movement. What brought you to the NAACP? Well, I had, uh, SNCC had disappeared. Right. We think destroyed by the federal government. And there seemed to be no alternative to it. And I looked at the NAACP because in Atlanta, at the time, the NAACP was a vibrant, strong organization, a neighborhood-based organization, active in this, that, and the other things, on the march all the time. And it seemed to be the last man standing. And I said, I want to be a part of that. So I joined the NAACP, but I would not done much with the NAACP as a member, but only active in the sense that I paid my dues. I became engaged in it. I got elected chairman of the local NAACP. Then I got elected to the board of directors of the NAACP. I had a fight with the incumbent board chairman. He managed to throw me out of the NAACP. I fought back. Wait a minute, do you have a, a problem of getting thrown out of things? Yes. <laughs> anyway, he, he threw me out of the NAACP. Right. Uh, where was it? Oh, so anyway, so then I got elected chairman of the board, and I served as chairman of the board for 11 years. One of the things that to me is very interesting, again, about reading history is that in our, our meaning, 64 to 68 experience, 
I think it's fair to say that SNCC and CORE, where I came from, we saw the NACP as a big obstacle. I saw it as a big obstacle, too, when I was young. But I grew to understand it's sturdy, it's here, if you go over here, it's really great, if you go over there, it's not so great. This one is wonderful, this one is not so. Well, the thing I I understood the most, because I think Roy Wilkins was a very destructive force in history, is just my own opinion, Mm -hmm. but when I read I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles Payne, I was shocked to understand that the NACP had been the bulwark of the most deep south repressive areas, Amzie Moore, and people had been building these NAACP chapters from the 30s and 40s had been facing lynching things, and they had been sometimes armed. I mean, I changed my opinion of this. What I'm saying is, yes. I said, you know, Me too. I said, you know, Eric, you had this little four-year window, but you didn't understand this history, right? Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. One question I wanted to ask you is that one of the common themes of the conference this weekend was, yes, we've elected more black Democrats, but has there really been an improvement in the conditions of black people through that? And let's at least look at the Obama administration as one of the greatest victories in some ways. And I certainly think the election of Barack Obama was a historic event beyond anything that could have been comprehended. But how do you perceive now seven years into the Obama administration? What's that model indicate for you? Well, it indicates to me that you've got to do more than elect the president. You've got to elect Congress people. And the movement I'm associated with, the movements I'm associated with, learned how to do the one, but never learned how to do the other. And, and really messed up when it came to the off-season elections. You know, they fell victim of the tales that are told us that in the off-season elections, the president's party always loses. Well, sure he does, but why does he have to? Why does that have to be so? Why can't we do better? Why can't this marvelous machine that elected Barack Obama why can't it elect one or two people or 50 or 60 people in Congress of the United States? It's something that I think we need to learn how to do, and we haven't learned how to do it yet. But if we don't do it, I mean, we're doomed to just elect a lot of great presidents, and that's it. Well, my view is that even within the first year, I think he took the wind out of the sails of a lot of his people. And I did, think yes. that with the shocking reaching out across the aisle, the horrible attacks on him that we all wanted to fight, it was like, come on, if you take them on, We'll take them on and letting the Tea Party out of the grotesque racism against him as a president of the United States and the bailing out of Wall Street, not having a social program for the poor. Within a year, I was talking to a lot of people and they went, okay, I'm glad he's elected, but I don't see him as our friend. See, I don't believe that an appeal to the president of the United States is going to help us. But by the time in the sixth year, it's very hard to tell people you got to elect congressmen when the election of a black president should have been a watershed, even if it wasn't completely. I I, I agree with what you're saying, and I agree with your analysis, but I think it was a watershed. And I think the second election was more powerful than the first, because the second election proved that the first was not a That's right. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. I cried for that one. It was just great. Oh, I did too. I mean... I had had plenty of disappointments. I'm sure I'm going to have some more, but I'm so happy he's there. Well... I'm in a very ambivalent relationship because my family, we were so excited about the first Obama. The second one was more of my strategic thinking coming, all right, I am not that excited, but we are not going to let Mitt Romney get elected. We are not going to get the first black president defeated. And I went back with enthusiasm again, you know, with with a little different understanding. It's bound to to be this way every election. This is what happened to us every election. Please say no. Well, 
last thoughts. There must be a lot going through your head yes. on the 50th anniversary. Yes. So many people you've seen, yes. reconstructing your own life. So share with me just a couple of things that's Actually, going on in your mind. You open this with saying that it's not just nostalgia, right. but a lot of it is nostalgia for me. To see old friends, to see old buddies, to see these people with whom I went through the most important years of my life uh, just means so much to me. I'm so happy to be here. I, I don't want it to end. Uh, I know we just have, as of today, two more days. A day, just another one more day. I don't count Sunday. Uh, but... Uh, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to, and I know that some of these people I'll never see again. That's right. As I don't see here some of the people I saw 30 when we did the 30th anniversary and as we're doing this one. So I feel sad about that. But um, I also see the young people who are here and think this is our future, and they are being educated in what they need to be doing. And many of the older people here, people my age and older, are continuing doing what they were doing. It's not like they're just sitting down saying, here, you take over. Uh, it's a it's standing up and saying let's do this together so I'm optimistic about this I've been an optimist all my life in spite of having common sense at the same time <laughs> but I believe you know we can do it whatever needs to be done we can do it I completely agree with you and I want to take back my nostalgia word because, okay. because I thought it was pejorative in ways I didn't mean yeah. because I think you're absolutely right that we're going back to a period that a new generation so far has not been blessed enough to go through right. and had a level of relationships to each other mm -hmm. a level of personal risk a level of personal transformation in which your own beliefs were challenged daily mm -hmm. and relationships that were built under conditions that people couldn't imagine so I, I definitely take back that because I think the reconnection mm -hmm. with our own history is a very critical part of it and thanks for that reorientation okay good <laughs> and the last thing is I think all organizers are optimists. Yes, I think you have to be. You have to be. I mean, I wake, I go to bed upset. The next morning, I got a new idea. Sure. Whatever the problem was when I went to bed, I spend the night, okay, what, have we tried this? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I just think that's why we're going to win. Uh, indeed, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Julian Bond. Turn me round, ain't gonna let nobody load it. Turn me round, I keep on a walking. So, hey, everybody. This is Eric Mann on Tuesday, January 4th. I hope you really enjoyed the amazing Mumia Abu-Jabbar, the amazing Julian Bond, always Nina Simone, and Ernesto Arce's South Central Third World News. Help us build voices from the front lines. It really means a lot. Please check out our podcast. Tell your other friends to listen. Go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Click on it and it'll give you the podcast. I want to thank everybody. We'll see you next week. And I'm deeply moved by the Summer of Soul film and uh, Nina Simone's amazing performance at it. Check it out. I'll see you next Tuesday. All power to the people. Turn me around, turn me around, turn me around.